All right, welcome back to another episode of ICU Doc Talk. Uh, let's talk about crisis management today. Um, I don't really know where I'm going to go with this, but <clears throat> um, I kind of want to. I want to talk about how to think in a crisis um, and what is the best way to go about. It. And I'm talking. And I'm. I'm obviously I'm going to be talking about crisis, in, like an emergency, with in medicine, right? Because um, that's my expertise. Um, but you know, I think I think <clears throat> the way to think about things and the way to frame things and how to operate in a group uh, in a collaborative way during a crisis in medicine can be applied to a crisis in many many different scenarios. So I'll probably bring in stories from my experience uh, being a critical care physician and an anesthesiologist um, because what I do is basically is being I, I think what my expertise is in <clears throat> right. People are like, what distinguishes an anesthesiologist from a nurse anesthetist? I get that, I ask, get that question asked all the time. Um, and I think one of the main things that distinguishes them is being an expert in crisis management. Now, that's not to say a nurse anesthetist or a CRNA in the United States is does not know what to also is not good at crisis management. I do think an anesthesiologist has a more volume, breadth, and depth of managing a crisis. Um, and then particularly being a critical care physician, uh, I, I think that is just that is part that is a huge part of my job right i work with lots and lots and lots of different people in different um spheres of you know expertise and my job is to corral everybody together in a moment of crisis and to try to uh, have the best possible outcome for a patient that also provides them with a long-term quality of life as well um so let's talk about that today so, okay, so a bit, obviously there's a lot of different components of my job. <clears throat> and one of them is, you know, looking up, understanding what's going on with a patient uh, at their current moment in time. Because I don't longitudinally follow patients, right? I'm not like a classic country doctor, or a primary care doctor who sees a patient over years or, you know, or a pediatrician that sees a, a child grow throughout years. And that's, that's uh, not my type of medicine at all, which, uh, I think is an, an amazing part of medicine that have to have long-term longitudinal care with a single provider, which I think is also something that is kind of going out the window, unfortunately. Right. I mean, I would imagine in the United States, the average listener, how long have you been with your current like primary care physician? You know, is it long-term <laughs> or has it just been six months or something like that? So I, I think it's unfortunate. I think that's happening with medicine and primary care is, a very difficult field uh, because of patient volumes, and it's I think it's a very hard thing to be in. Uh, but anyway, so I don't have that longitudinal care. I take care of patients in these like one-off moments of time, either in the operating room, like an elective surgery, like someone's getting their uh, their sinus they have a sinus disease, and an ENT surgeon is fixing their whatever their you know, their sinuses, or um, or I'm do I'm covering anesthesia for like a Whipple procedure, where it's just someone has pancreatic cancer, and a surgeon is trying to resect that out and give that that patient um, the the best chance of survival. So I, I do that in the in the operating room, have these one offs with patients, elective surgery. I also do emergent surgeries, like right, someone comes to the emergency department, and they got they attempted to commit suicide, and uh, they have a neck wound, and and they have to emergently become down for repair, so I'll cover stuff like that. And then I uncover, I, I have unexpected emergencies that happen in the operating room. And then, of course, I do I critical care um, in the IC, which is a completely different thing. And I am involved in people's lives, 
either they're recovering from routine surgery and they just need like a, a night in the ICU and they're fine and they'll leave the next day or someone is seriously devastatingly sick and we're trying to save their lives. Um, so I that my whole point is I have these, these one-offs with patients. I don't have this long longitudinal care. So it is fairly routine for me to just be called into a patient's room. I mean, it happens almost every day. And I say, I think it's the most important part of my job is to be called into a patient's room who I actually, sometimes I know nothing about the patient, right? Sometimes I'm not involved. Oftentimes, oftentimes I am called into a patient's room and I've no, I haven't even had a chance to look at the patient's chart because it's such a, it's so emergent and I have not been involved in their care whatsoever until that moment that I'm called into the room. So I, uh, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times it's happened. I'm, so, I'm called into a patient's room or a code blue somewhere in the hospital and, I'm, and I run to it and I'm there. And the only information I now have about that patient is just before my eyes. That's it, right? And I actually think that's kind of an advantage in a lot of ways uh, because I'm not biased by the, by the patient's medical history I'm not biased by their medical chart. I'm not biased by what other providers believe about this patient or what they think is going on. So I often have times have extremely fresh eyes when with a patient uh, who is doing poorly, who is maybe about to have cardiac arrest or is currently having a cardiac arrest and we're doing chest compressions. Now, of course, I, I need more. You need more information about patients eventually. But I have said it before <clears throat> on this podcast that to resuscitate a patient, so I... I think oftentimes all you need is the information in front of your eyes to to do the immediate resuscitation of a patient. And that's how that's all these in the United States these protocols are designed, right? BLS and ACLS. These are the designed these protocols are designed to know and algorithms are designed are on are predicated on the assumption that you don't know anything about a patient and you're just trying to get their pulse back. And then once you get a pul- someone's pulse back, then then a lot of other new work begins to keep them alive and to investigate and to do diagnostics and to, yes, what is going on with their history? Is it, does their history, is it involved in what they're doing and what's going on? Anyway, so my, my point is I come into a patient's room, immediate and emergency, it's an emergency, and I often have, times have no prior knowledge of what is going on with this patient. So I've said it many times uh, on TikTok and on my podcast, but I, my approach, um, to arriving at a patient's room that's in an emergency is I like to I like to say as little as possible. Um, oftentimes, so if you're in medicine, your experience is probably something like this. Whether you're a nurse or a medical student or a resident or whatever, often and there's a an, uh, a code blue is going on. It's oftentimes if you stand if you were to put a camera at someone's door at a patient's door if you were standing there and you were observing, here's what you would observe very very likely. A code blue is called by, you know, a nurse discovers a patient without a pulse and starts doing chest compressions, and then a code blue is called. What happens is waves of people start showing up at the door, in the doorway, right? Some people either come into the room right away, they'll crowd the doorway, or they'll hang out in the hallway. And everybody's trying to be helpful, right? Everybody's there to, they, they want to help. These are all, like, amazing people. At, you know, they're there because they're awesome. These health, all these healthcare providers are just amazing people, and they want to help. Um... But oftentimes what happens is people show up and they start talking. They start asking questions. That is, the, that is one of the first, that is typically the first thing someone does when they show up. And it's usually is, it's usually something like, what's going on? Or do you know what's going on? Or whose patient is this? Or what's the story? The, I mean, this is what happens. 
every, all, in, uh, invariably, this is what happens every time. So what I have learned to say nothing because there's so much noise pollution going on adding to the chaos and confusion. I don't want to add to it. And it doesn't, I don't learn anything. I mean, from my experience, when you show up and you ask questions, the majority of people there don't know anything about the patient. They have just arrived to help out and they usually don't, they don't know, they don't know what's going on. So I arrive and I use my natural senses to put a story together of what's going on. So I arrive, I don't say anything, unless uh, no one is running the code blue, then I need to take over and I need to run the code blue. But oftentimes, I mean, I'm at a major academic center in the United States, there's usually a resident that is running the code blue. A code blue in the United States is, is, is our, is is for cardiac arrest. We call it code blue if there's cardiac arrest, that's what we call it. Uh, Anyway, so what's my point? So I show up and I say nothing and I, uh, look at what's going on, right? I, and first thing I look at is our chest compressions happening, right? That's what I, that's the first thing I, because that orients me to the situation. If I look and the patient's sitting up in bed and people are talking to the patient, then I'm like, okay, the patient has a blood pressure. They have a circulation. Their heart is pumping blood to their brain enough that they're talking. And usually I'm like, okay, I don't, this is not as much, of, I, you know, in my brain, I downgrade it immediately. And oftentimes I can just leave. Uh, because again, I'm not the primary. Sometimes I'm not the primary. So just to just to be clear, I oftentimes am the primary physician in the ICU, right? If a code happens in my ICU, I know this patient well, and then I immediately run the code. Uh, so that that happens all the time as well. Uh, anyway, so I show up and I I look and I'm like, okay, are they having chest compressions? If they're having chest compressions, all right, well we start our ACLS algorithm, meaning the algorithm to you know resuscitate someone in cardiac arrest. If they're not having chest compressions, I, I, I look at to see if they're vitals. I look at the vitals, um, and then I go from there. And then and then I uh, do a physical exam of the patient. I usually auscultate, you know, listen to their heart and lungs and see if they're breathing, if they're not doing chest compression, you know, see if there's a breathing tube if we're doing chest compression, you know, just using my senses to get full stock of the situation. And the reason I'm bringing this up, and I've talked about it before, is when you do this, it slows everything down in your mind, right? Because the, the whole point of this episode, I'm talking about crisis management, how to think uh, during a crisis. And when you when you stop and you use your senses, I don't know what it is. There's just something about it that slows the moment down and gives you time to process what's going on. It gives you. It's almost like it's stall, like you're stalling, but you're not really stalling. Like you're think you're truly thinking, um, but you're kind of stalling and vamping to be like, what hmm, what's going on? And it, it just it gets your mind in the in the correct mindset to now act and think critically and to be clinically powerful and not be biased by information coming at you at the door like oh this patient was admitted with uh, you know a with heart failure or whatever and maybe something else is com- completely something else is completely going on with the patient it has nothing to do with why they're even admitted it often does though I mean don't get me wrong uh, people usually often die of the thing that they've been dying of um but anyway it kind of just slows the moment it's like bullet time you know it slows the moment down um and it gives you time to think about what's going on i can't tell you how many times i've been sitting there listening to the lungs of an unstable patient being like oh man what is in my mind i'm like what is going on and then i'm like oh yeah well, i can just think about this let's think about this what's a differential diagnosis okay i have this 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 and that, seriously that goes through my mind and these things can go through your mind in a split second right because our mind you know your, your mind can th- 
think very quickly. It's not like you need time. That's why that's what I mean. It like slows everything down. And um, now, if you're the if you're a leader in in a type of situation like a crisis, um, as you know, everybody is looking to the to whoever's leading what's going on. Uh, the tone of that leader is going to set the tone for the room, right? So if you're panicked. And you're like, I don't know what to do, you know, and you're freaking out. Everybody can see that. They can see it in your body language uh, and how you talk, um, right? They, they they all can see that. Now, I also kind of want to, let's let's get to, like, cognitive errors and the fact that human brains make mistakes. Like, it doesn't matter how experienced you are, how many times you've done things, whatever. You make mistakes. And your assessment of things uh, can be wrong and is wrong. Like my assessment of things is wrong all the time. My, my assessment of something just yesterday in the operating room was wrong. It was fine. Everything turned out fine. But I, you know, there's things like anchoring bias and confirmation bias um, that are huge cognitive blinders and they can happen to anybody at any time. The reason I bring this up is you need to accept the foibles <laughs> of yourself, uh, the, the human frailty, right? And our foibles are everywhere. And you cannot perform perfectly. Every time. Maybe sometimes you can. Um, maybe sometimes it's just coincidence and luck. But I don't know. I think um, a lot of a lot of stuff doesn't necessarily, you know, in medicine and in other fields, I think a lot of times we try to, we like act like the outcomes hinge on our, on our decision making only when there's so much, there's so many other factors going on, random chance being one of them, happenstance being one of them, right? R- random chance just, or the human body and medicine just getting better on its own, right? I say all the time that in critical care medicine, I, the, my job is just to try to keep the body alive while the body sorts itself out and tries to figure out if it's going to heal, if it's going to get better, right? Uh, there's not a lot of healing going on. Uh, obviously, there's some interventions and things that we do that do cause help the body to heal but the body must heal on its own um so what i'm trying to get at is even if things don't work out or if things do work out it does it's not necessarily a, a direct result of how you acted in that situation and this should be a comforting thing to you that not everything is truly in your control even in a crisis Um, so if you're, if you're, if you're not performing perfectly and if you have a panic brain, it's, it's okay. It's, it's not all about you. It's almost, it's like, uh, it's almost, it's like, it's not about your ego, right? If something goes wrong in medicine and you're involved and even had to do with your actions and you were like so guilty about it, that's, it's kind of a, like egotistical, right? You're assuming you're like taking that entire burden onto you and you're like, Oh, it's all my fault. Yeah, that's kind of all about you and your ego. It is, right? Just throw it out the window. Just your ego. Who cares? <laughs> who cares about your ego? Who cares if you uh, saved the day or if you didn't save the day, right? It's not, it, this is just like a false narrative. Particularly, I think physicians, medical students, residents have in their minds that everything depends on you. There's a huge collaborative team and in highly structured environments like in a hospital or on a plane or in, I don't know, other scenarios I can't think of because I'm not smart and creative enough. Um, there's, there's teams, this is team-based success, 
um, and hoping things turn out for the best. I, so I, I don't know. You just don't need to feel so stressed. Just when the day is over, go home and go, you know, go do the things that make you happy. Um, and I, I think this attitude is, nece- is really necessary, particularly in critical care, is that, um, you know, obviously, now let me just back it up a little bit. There is, there is, people can be, can have grossly, can have poor judgment and can have patterns of poor judgment. Um, and that can be a problem, right? I'm not, I'm not saying there's not competency and there needs to be a certain level of competency in these highly structured environments that are at high stakes, like in medicine and things like that. People need to be highly trained and they need to be competent at what they're doing, right? There is incompetency, right? I'm not trying to be all like, uh, uh, lovey-dovey here, like, oh, everything. like you have to, obviously people need to have a certain level of competence to be involved in these, and, and incompetence, negligence, dishonesty can 100% lead to worse outcomes in a crisis and can kill patients, and that is a problem. And if that, and if that's the reason that things went wrong, then yes, that is your fault, um, right? So I, this, it, I know it's complex, what, what I'm talking about here, but I don't know, you get what I'm saying. All right, the, the other thing I want to talk about in crisis management is ask people what they think. <laughs> like, ask everybody, like, what's going on? What do you think is going on? Is there anything else? Which I do this every time I run a code blue, a cardiac arrest, right? And I've ran many, I've run many, 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 many code blues. I've watched pe- many people die. I've watched many people come out of cardiac arrest, right? I've done this many times. And I'll, every time, every time, particularly as the code is just going on, it's just prolonged, I always, you always ask the room, be like, and always summarize, like, hey, here's what we've done just for anybody, you know, who's not, because people aren't there the entire time of the crisis. Summarize. And that, by the way, let me just back it up, summarizing to the room. And I encourage my fellows and residents to do this when they're like 10 minutes into a code and I kind of sense they're kind of like, oh, they're kind of scared. I'm like, hey, Dr. So-and-so, can you summarize to the room what has occurred and what is going on and what you think is happening? And just verbalizing, uh, being able to to just just verbalize what you think is going on. Oh my gosh, that helps your thinking process so much. The panicked brain does not work. That's in fact, that's another thing I want you to take away from this uh, podcast. The panicked brain doesn't work. doesn't work. If you're panicked, forget it. You, it can't work. This is why people, this is why so many people like, um, I don't know. Sometimes people are terrible test takers, right? They can be extremely intelligent and know the material, but they're, you know, can fail an exam. Because they're panicked on the exam. That, you know, performance anxiety has a lot to do with this. Um, so the panic brain is broken at that moment. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It cannot think critically. And it freezes up. It seizes and you can't think. So verbalizing, just, just talking to the room. And just being honest and, and asking questions. This is not the time to show off. Right? This is not the time to show off and to demonstrate your, your intellectual prowess. This is the time to figure out what's going on and to try to save the patient. Or, or whatever your crisis situation is. Uh, it's the time for that. So crowdsource. You crowdsource. You verbalize things. And then you say something like, does anyone else have any ideas? Does anyone else have any, any uh, comments about what's going on? Is there, are there any concerns about what's going on, right? Sometimes people have concerns. And if you, uh, if you allow that space for that to occur, uh, you know, that can happen. And then also, even people not suggesting things, right? You can be like, are any any ideas anything about and if you just get silence that also can bolster your confidence in that situation because you're like you know what i'm not okay i'm not a total idiot here at least i at least no one else is like i'm not missing some glaring thing uh where something's you know where you know nobody else has any suggestions maybe i've 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 crossed all the things off the list now on that point if you're in a crisis and you have that hand on your shoulder 
Okay? Someone puts a hand on your shoulder, and they lean in, and they make a suggestion to you. Listen to that suggestion. You're missing something big. Right? Somebody, that means someone has been observing your, the situation, and they're like, ooh, something, I need to go tell him or her uh, this thing. And so if you're a leader in this situation, like in a code blue or something like that, and you get that hand on your shoulder and you feel someone's breath on your ear and they're about to tell you something, listen to what they say. Do not argue with that person because they probably are more objective. They probably have a more objective assessment of what's going on. You've probably gone down the hole of anchoring bias and confirmation bias. You've been thinking, oh, it's got to be this, it's got to be this, it's got to be this. Ah, it's not this. Ah, ah, ah. And then you get that hand on your shoulder and someone says, hey, have you considered this? Oh, no, I haven't. Let's think about that. This isn't your, again, this is not time for your ego, your wounded ego. It doesn't matter. I can't tell you, please, if you're a resident or a medical, please listen to what I'm saying. It does not matter that you didn't think of it first. It doesn't matter. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? Be like, oh, I haven't thought about it. And then immediately implement that idea. Okay. Now, uh, and I've talked about it before. Sometimes you are the person that isn't seeing the thing the obvious thing. And sometimes you're the other person because you just have the benefit of being fresh eyes on the situation. Having fresh eyes on a situation helps in crisis management. I I cannot believe how important it is to have fresh eyes on a situation. The fresh eyes don't have the bias of the last 10 minutes and, and we're not participating in the maybe flawed thinking that was going on during that time that's missing the obvious thing that's going on. And the fresh eyes can come and be like, whoa, wait, what about this? The auction isn't turned on or something like that, right? That doesn't happen often, but it sometimes does, okay? Sometimes really, really, really obvious things um, like the oxygen at the wall wasn't on. Now, that's rare. I'm, 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 that's very, very rare. But I'm just saying stuff like that can happen. So, so next time someone puts a hand on your shoulder and your ego's all wounded because you didn't think of the thing first, you will be, the next time you will be that fresh eyes and you will make those suggestions. And that's another point. If you're not the leader, speak up. Speak up. If, uh, you know, if you're not, if you're unsure, just speak up and be like, hey, what about this? What about this? It's fine. It's fine. Um, and then another thing that goes along with all this is do not be afraid to sound stupid. Who cares if you sound stupid? You might say something, and yeah, maybe maybe you think you sound stupid. Maybe you said something that was thought of 10 minutes ago. It doesn't matter, but maybe it wasn't, right? Anchoring bias is a huge problem where someone anchors on a diagnosis and they will not consider anything else, and they're like, it must be this diagnosis. Like They have a priori anchoring uh, bias, um, and they're not seeing the, the obvious thing that you may be seeing. So yeah, if you're not a leader in this situation, you need to speak up at any time. Speak I may, this might be a little sexist. Uh, it probably is, but you need to speak loud. You need to be loud. All right. Men's men, uh, oftentimes, uh, have louder voices. So that's probably why that's sexist of me. Um, but we live in a sexist society and people listen to louder people. Like if you have a louder voice and unfortunately, I think if people have a deep voice and if you're a man, people listen to you more, uh, because our, that's the sexist structure of our society. Unfortunately, uh, but you need to be loud, which is a, and, and I'm getting on a whole other tangent here. Now I already hear, I already hear the, uh, rebuttal. Well, you know, if you're a woman and you speak loud, then people think you're, uh, like awful, right? Cause we're sexist. <laughs> we're, we are a sexist society. Women who speak loudly get a bad reputation of being quote bossy or which is a sexist word. The word bossy is a sexist word. Or being difficult, or being you know whatever. And when it's their male counterpart, they're they're 
the exact things that a woman says in a certain tone and voice. If a man does it, their exact male counterpart, they're, they're applauded for it, right? They're being seen as a strong leader. Whereas if a woman does it, they're seen as a toxic leader, right? Anyway, that's a, I digress that point. You need to be loud is my point. You need to be loud. Um, you need to speak loudly in a situation like this because that's how, that's what people pay attention to. That's just the, that is just the reality of our social fabric is you need to speak loud. Uh, and I know it's a kind of an obvious point, but, but it's an important one because if you're quiet, number one, someone might, people might not, might not hear you. And unfortunately you might not be taken serious as well. So you need to be loud in these situations. All right. And then the next, another little piece of advice I wanted to give about crisis management is just talking about Occam's razor, <clears throat> excuse me, um, which I've talked about before. So Occam's razor is this principle that the most likely cause of something is the one that um, has the, the least amount of assumptions. So this is a very useful principle in medicine that if you're trying to come to a diagnosis or trying to figure out the cause of something, whatever it is, probably has the least amount of assumptions in it. Meaning if one thing can explain what's going on, then you don't need to reach for multiple things to also explain what's going on. So this is highly pertinent in medicine and in a crisis situation like a cardiac arrest because the simplest explanation is probably what's causing the patient to arrest, right? It's probably one thing that's causing the patient to arrest. It's probably just one thing. Very, very likely it's one thing. Like maybe they have a pulmonary embolism, a clot went to their lungs and they're dying from it. Or maybe they are hyperkalemic, like their potassium's too high because they missed dialysis. And that is the one thing. So, <clears throat> and this is not, only, is, not only is this a very useful principle, but it's just, it works. From my clinical experience, Occam's razor is very true. Now I've gotten some feedback about Occam's razor. You know, uh, when I posted videos about it, that people say, well, that's why diagnosis get missed. And my answer to that is no, it's not. So I don't think Occam's razor, Occam's razor does not miss rare diagnoses, right? In fact, I think it detects rare diagnoses more um, because if you cannot explain a symptom or a lab or something by one simple assumption and you're like, well, it's not that, it's not that, it's not that, then you start reaching for rarer diagnoses. And I, I actually think it encourages you to do that um, because it's usually one thing that is driving what's going on. Now, however, there's also, what is it, Hickam's dictum, which is uh, it, patients can have as many d damn diseases as they would like. And that is also true. Um, so multiple diseases can be causing a constellation of symptoms and findings. Uh, I think if you follow Occam's razor and if you just start with the least amount of assumptions and if those few assumptions don't fit together, then you expand outward. And I think you start detecting more diseases. So I don't think Occam's razors and Hickam's dictums um, are co contradictory in any way. And I don't think Occam's razor um, misses diagnoses. I think it helps find diagnoses and it helps your clinical decision-making. So the point of all this is in a crisis management, the, the simplest explanation is likely what's going on. Very, very likely. So you need to cover your bases. <clears throat> Um, the simple explanations, and this is why you need to stick to things that are protocolized, right? Protocols, like in, in the United States, we have ACLS, which is a protocol we follow in a code blue. You need to stick to it. The reason is these protocols are designed to detect the basic things, the basic assumptions that we know about medicine. And I'm sure if you're in another field, you, you probably have protocols that you would follow in a crisis management that are designed to detect things quickly basic things because it is usually 
the basic things with the least amount of assumptions that is causing the problem. So you need to stick to protocol. Now, sticking to a protocol doesn't mean you can't think creatively. It doesn't mean you can't think outside of that protocol. But you need to cover your bases and do the protocol perfectly uh, and to the T, right? And if that means having the protocol in front of your hands, like the ACLS algorithm, and looking at it, that's fine. It doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be memorized or whatever. You know, uh, I've seen many people run a code blue, and I myself have pulled out the ACLS card <clears throat> and have been like, okay, am I missing everything? That's why in every code blue, I'm also like, if you're familiar, I'm also like, what are the H's and T's? I say this in almost er like every code blue I do, unless it's super obvious what's going on. I'm like, okay, let's go over the H's and T's. These are these are a shorthand mnemonic for people that aren't familiar to help diagnose. There's there's H's and T's <clears throat> that you go over that, that that can be a cause of cardiac arrest, and you need to go through every single one of them and rule every single one of them out during a code. Because guess what? It's going to be one of those things. It is. I've ran many code blues. It's never not one of those things. So stick to protocols. Use Occam's razor as a heuristic, as a mental shortcut for yourself. Uh, slow down. Stick to the basics. Ask questions. It's okay to feel stupid. And forget about your ego. That's it. All right, let's go to a book. <clears throat> I'm actually going to do something different today. I'm going to review a fiction book. I know I almost always exclusively do nonfiction. This is a fairly, fairly popular <clears throat> new release. It's called Babel by R.F. Kuang. Um, this, I really enjoy this writer. She wrote the Poppy, what, what is it called? The Poppy War series, which is very, very good. Um, and I want to talk about this book. You've probably heard of it. It's like, I don't know, best-selling something, something. Um, it's, it's a very popular book. And I just want to talk about it today. And I can do more um, fiction reviews as well in the future. All right, so just to, th this has pretty big spoiler alerts. So I, I wouldn't read this. I wouldn't follow this review. Or I wouldn't listen to this if you haven't read this book. Or if you don't plan on reading it, then just don't read it. Um, but I do have quite a few things to say about this book. First, so just to, I, I loved, uh, I've read her Poppy's War series, and I loved it. Um, this writer, she's an incredible talent. Um, uh, and I did enjoy Babel. But I have several criticisms that I'll get into about this book. So the book does have a lot of strengths. Foremost is being uh, it's the character Robin Swift. So I enjoyed the evolution of this character. I was like sympathetic by his progression. Um, he was torn between ideology and dogma and nationalism and victimization. Uh, and he was well done. He was the main strength of the book. And I guess what this this, this book is about, um, it's, it's fantasy, but it's speculative fiction uh, in the 1800s, like 1830s or 40s of an a Chinese immigrant who's taken from his home um, in China and taught English, and he's basically exploited for his linguistic skills along with a couple other immigrants from throughout the world. That's kind of the premise of the book. So, and the main character is Robin Swift. So, I, and I really love the dynamic with him and the other main characters. I love the setting of the book, England, Oxford, um, and the colonized world, which was rife with a lot of tension and engagement. The chosen time period was really good and allowed critiques of power structures of that day while indirectly commenting on the modern power structures today. I very much embrace the themes of this book, which are like imperialization, uh, revolution and counter-revolution, anti-counter-revolution, rebellion, racism, white supremacy, classism, nationalism, patriotism. I love what was explored, and I think there are really crucial themes for, you know, for our current political moment as well. So in this way, I, it was a, I, think, I think this was a timely novel. But here's my issues with the book. It is incredibly pedantic. It's heavy-handed, and it's very contrived. 
and these three issues are very related. So, and this book isn't really science fiction or fantasy. It's, it's technically, in my opinion, it's speculative fiction. And the only speculation going on is that the modern world is run on silver bars that are imbued with magical power derived from the differences in translation of languages. The main characters, as I said, are linguists, and they're trained in understanding how these silver bars operate. It just so happens that these main characters are exploited immigrants who begin to understand that they may be able to seize power and force change by exploiting the dependence of this magic silver bar system. If you didn't follow that, it's fine. All of this is an enormous contrivance of the author. And, and what I mean by that is the world building was set up for these characters, and the world building is ultimately just a contrived plot device for these characters to have power, to have drama, and to have tension to drive the story. I felt like the author was behind the scenes and orchestrating everything, and it wasn't very fun. It wasn't organic. Kwong uh, should have just abandoned the speculative fiction thing and written the historical fiction book but that would have been way harder than just making up a loosely defined magic system, which she did. So this is probably one of the most pedantic works of fiction I've ever read. The constant explaining of linguistic rules and translations to the reader, it was so dull, it was very overwrought, and only necessary because the entire contrived world hinged on the reader at least halfway understanding some these things about linguistics. The first half of this book is a lot of the main cast, like ooing and aahing at how language works, and then the narration, the narration trying to get the reader to do the same thing. I did find it mildly interesting, and that kept me going, but it was also kind of exhausting to read. I think anyone shouldn't feel bad about not finishing this book at like a you know, 20% through. And then to my third point about the book, it's really heavy-handed. I really I did enjoy there's this dichotomy set up through uh, two characters, Griffin and Anthony. One of them, um, uh, Griffin, or no, is it Anthony? I forget one of them is like the Malcolm X. Um, uh, is that Anthony? I forget. Anyway, one's insisting on violence to upend like the social order. The other is like the Martin Luther King-like character, insisting that change comes through incremental liberalism. And I think this resonated with me because these are really important concepts to grapple with now and throughout history. Uh, and I did love how the main character, Robin, was in the middle of this dichotomy. So I think I liked how that was set up. None of this is laid out with any subtlety. And again, I just felt like these characters were mouthpieces of the narration. And then once the main character, Robin, makes the decision, the book just becomes kind of this inevitable slog with the only conclusion that I kind of take is that violence and destruction of the current social order is the correct way to enact change. I think that is the main, one of the main points of the book. And, and I'm not going to argue that, that Kwong, the author, endorses these characters. It is just a story. This is a story. But I couldn't help but feel that there was some misguided moralizing going on that was intended for the reader to internalize, especially when part of the title of this book is The Necessity of Violence. Anyway, this, this book could have been much better with more subtlety to allow the reader to reflect on what is happening. The author doesn't really trust the reader and honestly kind of insults the reader by hammering in the same thing cover to cover with very little nuance. Two science fiction writers come to mind who accomplish much better than what R.F. Kwong does. One of them is Ursula K. Le Guin. The other one is Octavia Butler. Read them. Read those authors. Anyway, in the end, I did like this book. I didn't love it. I don't regret reading it. I think it certainly does not live up to the hype. Um, and if you're thinking you may not like this and you want to pass, I think you should pass on it. It's not a must read.
Anyway, that's it for my that review. Um, so I usually do nonfiction, but that's my first time really going to a fiction book. If you want more nonfiction, it's more accessible and easier to talk about. Just let me know. Or if you like me to talk about some fiction books every now and then, because I read a lot of fiction, a lot of fantasy and sci-fi. Um, I can also include that on the podcast. So let me know at icudrecmo at gmail. All right, let's uh, finish this out with answering an email question. Um, this is from Michael, uh, last name withheld, sent me a very lovely email, and then um, which I appreciate. And then he has, has a question. Um, it says, my fiance is an ICU nurse at an inner city trauma center and sees death and destruction almost every day. What is the good way to support her and accompany her through that hardship? Um, my first my first uh, uh, answer to that question is to listen to what she has to say. Uh, you can't fix. Right. So if she's having, so someone like her, an ICU nurse uh, at an inner city trauma center, seeing, you know, the gore, daily violence and gore and the, the consequence of those things, you can't fix that. Right. So you can't try to, f- you can't fix her problem, the problems, the impact that that's having on her. Um, so you can't fix anything, I think, is the, my, my first part of the answer. But what you can do is listen to her and be a, uh, a place to, uh, that she can vent the things that are happening and the things that she's witnessing. Make sure you ask her how her day has been, every day. <laughs> um, uh, sometimes in the chaos of the world and uh, in our daily lives, we forget to ask our partners. And it's a simple thing. But you need, to, you need to give her that opening to ask her how her day has been. Because she may want to really talk about it, but maybe doesn't want to do it spontaneously and wants to be invited to talk about it. You never know. I mean, I don't, I don't know her. I don't, you know, this is, I'm just kind of speaking generically. But you need to ask her how her day has gone. Um, and you need to listen. And then sympathize. And it's not the time to go about problem solving. Right? And then you need to also watch for signs of depression, um, which are not often spoken, right? So there's many signs of depression, right? Less energy, less interest in things that normally she has interest in, um, uh, not being able to concentrate uh, as, as, as well as she had, not, being, not having as much of an appetite, and just behaving differently. Um, so you need to watch for signs of depression and if you are if you think she's having them you should talk you should not be afraid to talk about them with her and also if someone like this is showing signs of suicidal ideation or self-harm they sh- you should ask point blank um have you thought of, of hurting yourself or committing suicide we know that asking people who are suicidal if they're going to commit suicide does not um, encourage them to commit suicide so if you for my you know in my life people i've known um I've asked many times people I've known in my life, uh, are you suicidal? Have you had thoughts? And I, I asked that early on. If someone's showing signs of major depression, you should ask it early on. Don't wait for them to act like they're suicidal. Ask it soon. Um, it's not going to hurt. And that person knows that you care and that you're a safe person, and that you care about them. Um, so anyway, there's, you know, there's obviously more we can talk about with that, but it's a, such a great question and such a great thing to think about to support our healthcare workers that are exposed to really horrific things um and it's not just the the 
it's not just the acts themselves, you know, the violence of the acts, but it's also like, how could someone do this? Or how did this happen? Uh, you can get a sense of futility to the world, of nihilism, that nothing matters. There's a whole host of mental illness that can come from someone who's exposed to this kind of trauma. So it's a great question. I hope that helps. Anyway, I'll wrap it up today. Um, thanks for listening. Again, email me at icudoctorecmo at gmail.com, and I'm on TikTok. My handle is icudoctor. Thanks.